Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Pitch, the subscriber portion of the podcast. I'm Leah St. Marie. I'm a former investigative journalist turned filmmaker. And I am Angel Dahoud Murphy. I am a writer, director, and creative currently living in Hollywood. Now, normally this is our paid part of the podcast, but because this is our first premium episode, we thought you'd benefit from hearing how both parts of our podcast work. In this portion, we bring you three writers, their story pitches, their whys, and the first three pages of their scripts read aloud by a group of actors, kind of like a radio play. What do you say we jump right in? Sure. Okay, who do we have for this episode? So for this episode, we decided that we would put ourselves on the chopping block, and we start with my feature thriller detective script, The Killing Floor, and then we go to Mercedes Bryce Morgan and Katrina Kudlick with their psycho-techno-thriller feature, Escape, that's E-S-C, and then we do yours, Angel's feature social justice action film, Hammond. Okay, well, let's jump right in with uh, The Killing Floor from Leah St. Marie. My name is Leah St. Marie, and I wrote the feature film, Spoonful of Sugar, that premiered at Fantastic Fest in 2022 and sold to Shudder. You can watch it there in the spring of 2023. My short film, Good Girl, won the Paris International Film Festival. I am directing my next feature film, Teatro dell'Amore, in Italy in 2023. I currently live and write in Los Angeles, California. Warning graphic content. In order to write The Killing Floor, I interviewed retired Oregon police detectives, two of whom were the leads and arresting officers on two serial killer cases. I also used my master's thesis on female serial killers to inform the psychology and practice of killers in this story. The Killing Floor is a dramatic thriller that follows Oregon police detective Johnny Ray, pictures someone like Reggae Jean Page, who's haunted by not finding kid killer Kelly in a 1979 case, a fact that leads to Johnny Ray feeling responsible for his partner's death, the death of countless kids, and the destruction of his faith in humanity. Johnny Ray is given a chance at redemption in finding Kelly's copycat killer 20 years later, who Johnny Ray thinks may be Kelly's foster son, Gavin, whom the detective failed to rescue when Gavin was a kid. At the start of the film, we witness Adam Diaz and his friend Benjamin in 1994 get abducted at a drive-in theater. Benjamin's body is later found thrown to the side of the road, nailed to a cross, the autopsy exam said he was sodomized post-mortem. Johnny Ray, already hardened by 20 years of witnessing the worst of the worst of society, has a ticking clock of 24 hours to find the killer before they kill little Adam Diaz. Flashback, 1979, a younger and less jaded Johnny Ray sits down with his partner Buck Love, charming, deadly with a pistol, at Johnny Ray's mom's ice cream stand. They witness Kelly with two foster kids, Gavin and Maggie. 
On a hunch, Johnny Ray goes to interrogate Kelly about his broken taillight. And during the course of the interaction, Johnny Ray gets a sense that Maggie is being abused by Kelly, the girl with the fresh bruises and the newly broken leg she doesn't have a good excuse for, to ask him to help her get away from Kelly. Maggie eyes the detective, already not able to trust men. She waits for him to know to rescue her. Neither of them know that this moment is the moment everything changes. Johnny Ray doesn't rescue the kids, and so he thinks Gavin grows up to kill children, just like Kelly taught him. But in a dramatic twist, it's Maggie, the quiet, limping girl Johnny Ray didn't rescue. Maggie blames Johnny Ray for how she turned out, believing that if the detective had saved her that day at the ice cream stand, she would have grown up normal. She would have grown up not a killer. We explore themes of generational trauma, not being able to escape our parents' legacy of poverty and harm, how Johnny Ray and Maggie have very intimately and thoroughly influenced each other's lives. The girl believing if anyone had paid attention to her, she would have been rescued and lived a good life, and the other living his life needing to save the next kid, hoping when he does, he'll be redeemed. Hello, my name is Mercedes Bryce Morgan. And I'm Katrina Kudlick. And we are writing partners. I am also a director, and Katrina is a producer. And we both met when we were at USC Film School. And now we have done multiple features together. Most recently, our feature, Fixation, was at TIFF, which premiered this year. And we also had our feature, Spoonful of Sugar, which will be on AMC Shutter next year. And with lots of fun scripts coming up that we wrote together. Do you know what incels are? So for you, those of you that don't, incel stands for involuntary celibate. And basically, it's a group made up of mostly men and boys who haven't had sex. And so they've created an online community for this. And the thing about this online community is it's been banned in most places. You're not allowed to post on Reddit about it. And that is mostly because it's become a misogynistic hate group. And what a lot of people don't know is that a lot of the school shootings over the years have been actually from the members of this group. So what's even more surprising is that this was actually created by a shy queer woman who was living in Canada at the time in the early 2000s. She was super lonely, just out of college and didn't have a relationship or experience with sex at that point, and she wanted to find other like-minded people who were just as lonely as she was. And so she was able to create this Alana's Involuntary Celibate Project through the internet and started to have a community that she felt really good about until it started to get taken over by all of these misogynistic men who hated on her and said that she could get laid any time, and she was essentially harassed off of her own site. She forgot about it for a few years, got a girlfriend, was living a happy life without it until the Elliot Rogers shootings happened. And he said that he was an incel and thanked the community. And this tore Alana up and made her receive a lot of threats that involved her having to change her name essentially to Alana at the end of the day. And so our movie is essentially the thriller horror take on this. It's called Escape, spelled E-S-C, like the little key on your keyboard. And it's been a finals in the Nichols Fellowship and the Slam Damn Script Competition. You can also go find it on the blacklist right right now. Um, please give us a good vote. Would would love to hear your feedback. And 
really what it is is it's this woman who accidentally created this group and new shootings are happening. And so she has to go back into the Internet and online into the community that she created within the next 24 hours to stop it before it happens again. Yo, 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 what's up, yo, yo, yo! <laughs> uh, I'm Angel. I've got no accolades. Didn't go to film school. Um, I write, though. So, there's that. Francesco Hammond, African-American Delta Force Special Operator. Imagine... Travante Rhodes, okay, except he's got the skills of Jason Bourne and John Rambo. Survival, drop him in any environment with nothing, he's going to be fine. Hand-to-hand -hand combat, deadly. Weapons and explosives, expert. Computer hacking, city systems, he knows it all. But he's suffering extreme complex PTSD, which comes from his decade of fighting the war on terror and growing up a black man in America. Now, our movie starts just after Hammond has decided he's had enough. It's time to retire. He served his country honorably, protected countless of innocent lives, men, women, and children abroad. His last mission is done. No more war. And so he comes home. Where is home? Compton, California. He has his aging mother to care for, and he's planning on living a quiet, peaceful life and to hopefully never fight again. His childhood sweetheart still lives next door to his mother. She's got two great kids, a sweet 10-year-old boy and a genius 12-year-old girl. Their father isn't in the picture anymore. Now Hammond settles into his civilian life. His mom is doing well. His crush next door is sharing just how grateful she is he's home safe and that he's home for good. She's dropping hints. The first rays of light are shining through the fog of war for him. When one day, while gardening in the front yard, he hears gunshots in the distance. Now, it's Compton, so this isn't rare, but he remembers he's not the hero anymore. The fights here at home don't concern him. He's done with war. So he takes a deep breath, digs his hands back into the soil, slowly exhales when a child screams for help in the distance. Then the child screams his name, Hammond! It's the boy next door who he sees is running for his life being chased by a police officer. The boy rushes into Hammond's arms and through tears quickly says, They shot him. He didn't do anything. I think they want my video. Hammond does the math on this as the boy rushes inside. Hammond then turns to see the cop arriving, baton out, swinging at his head. When Hammond wakes up, he's in a jail cell where he encounters a small crew of what we'll learn to be our racist police officers who attempt to kill him. Now, from there, we basically have a Rambo First Blood or Jason Bourne type story as if directed by Tarantino. We see a bloody, brutal revenge fantasy play out where the crooked cops, and they are crooked in this instance, in the most racist, justice-evading, power-abusing ways possible, get what's coming to them. And we get to watch our guy Hammond, who is so deserving of a peaceful life, get pulled back into the fight to play the hero role he can't seem to escape. And those were the three pitches. Thanks for listening. We are about to jump into our three pages. As read by our lovely group of actors. Now, before the reading, you'll hear the writer speak a little bit about why they wrote the story. And after the three pages, you'll hear contact information for all the writers. 
The Killing Floor, written by Leah St. Marie. So I am fascinated with female serial killers and not in the true crime sense, but because one, their killing career lasts decades longer than their male counterparts and their kill counts are much higher. And two, people don't believe women can be this violent. I based my entire master's thesis on this. I wanted to give an actress the opportunity to explore the kaleidoscope of human emotions and examine that pivotal moment in a character when change is still possible before violence becomes habit and then the immediate moment after when violence becomes nature. The Present, Exterior Drive-In, Sunset, 1994. Adam Diaz, 11, small for his age, and Benjamin Havoc, arm in a cast, stand on a wooden fence and fight for a vantage point along the wall to the drive-in. Both have book bags. Among the cars, we see a VW bug with a shadowy figure inside. Move, Havoc! I can't see the creature. You are the creature, asshat. Grow an inch and see the world. Jerk off. Yeah, me and your mom's dick. The boys continue to tease each other as the creature feature film plays on screen. The shadowy figure gets out of the VW bug and walks along the fence. We stay on their boots as they approach the boys. On screen, a woman screams as a giant insect monster eats the woman's face. We go back to the fence. Both boys are gone. On the ground is Adam's book bag, a few comics, a pack of cigarettes, and a sketch pad spilling out. The past. Exterior woods, sunrise, 1979. Legs running, dodging trees, kicking up weeds, going fast, cut to. Man's hand darning children's socks, cut to. They trip, snap. Scream, blood curdling, cut to. Man's hand drops a needle and sock and he bolts out of the house. The screen door slams, cut to. The heavy breath of an injured thing. The sound of the man running, then metal cranked apart. Calloused hands lift someone up, someone small. Flash of a bear trap, rusty, teeth gnarled with blood. The hands grab the back straps of coveralls and carry the small, now silent, someone over the weeds to a run-down house in the distance. They pass an old but well-kept VW bug. A kid's leg kicks the taillight out. Interior house later. Unfinished wood floors, a cursory cleanliness, and a curiosity in the corner of another room, a curio cabinet filled with something we can't quite see. Maggie Wilson, 12, in coveralls, tear-stained face, obstinate, tries not to show her pain. She grimaces. Hold still. This is hard enough to do without you squirming. You know that costs money to fix, right? You must think I'm rich. Hell, I must have pocket chains for broken taillights and such. I should just buy us a goddamn mansion with my pocket change I have. Maybe then you'd stay put. Ruin my morning, too. I said stop squirming! Kelly Wright, late 30s, early 40s, slight but fit body, surface charm, likes the sound of his own voice, cuts the pant leg off Maggie's coveralls. On the kitchen table next to them, we see his journal. He sets the scissors down. A chunk of Maggie's leg has been bitten and her foot twists at an awkward angle. Bet you thought the early bird catches the worm, didn't you? Well, no, no, no. This time the worm bit back. This is your fault, you know. I'm sorry, but... You're gonna want to scream, so bite. He takes his belt off, folds it once deftly, and fits it into her mouth. One, two, three. 
He pops the ankle back in place. Maggie screams into the belt. You see what happens when you run away. What's wrong with you? She grabs the scissors and holds them to her wrists. Go on, then. She can't. Fool girl, you think your life's really so hard you gotta up and leave it? You wanna die now with all your sins unforgiven? He gingerly takes the scissors from her as she cries. Come on now. What were you looking for? I, I told you your foster mom wasn't coming back. She just doesn't love you like I do. And the kind of love I have for you is something powerful. And, and it scared her away. I can be reached at my email, leahstmarie at gmail.com, L-E-A-H-S-A-I-N-T-M-A-R-I-E at gmail. Escape, written by Katrina Kudlick and Mercedes Bryce Morgan, inspired by the true story of the incel community founder. At the start, of course, we were really drawn to just the story and how incredibly ironic it was to see this shy queer woman who was put in the situation where she accidentally invented the incel community. But I think that what really, really drew us in was the bravery that surrounds a character like this and the, the fear that we all have growing up, especially in the age of the internet and the age of everything being out there where everything we put online is something that can come back to haunt us. And we, we all have that fear and thinking that we might do something a little silly or a little stupid. But what makes Mallory so special and what really drew us in is she tried to put something out there that was really positive and wanted to help create a community and make change. And it was taken in an entirely different fashion. And so following that character through a redemption arc that brings them closest to the things that they fear and having them have to come back through that is something that we found really captivating, especially just as uh, queer filmmakers too. We always want to see really dynamic queer characters uh, in film. And what excites us about someone like Mallory is we're following a character that's not just being faced with the, the internet, she's also being faced with the breakup, she's being faced with her own eating disorder, she's being faced with so many, so many elements that makes her a really dynamic character to follow and feels really relatable to what we want to see on camera. Interior, pixelated space, a young girl's toothy smile, precious and seemingly innocent. Her blurry eyes stared daggers into our souls until, click, delete. We pull back to reveal we're on a laptop, home screen. The photo is dragged into the trash. More photos are deleted and we're able to see the girl age, losing her smile in puberty gaining and losing weight, becoming more and more alone. The computer user frantically scrubs the internet, killing off any signs that this girl ever existed. We flash past articles like, everything we know about the creator of the male supremacist terrorist community. The cursor pauses, hovering over a video. How it started and how it all will end. Play. Quick time. Meet past Mallory. 21, the same girl from the pictures. She's definitely not smiling now. In fact, she's sobbing. I turned 21 today, but nothing has changed. She clutches what appears to be a gun. Her hands slide down the shaft, inexperienced, clumsy. I'm sorry it all has to come to this. Fingers trembling, she raises it. Smash cut to 
Interior, studio apartment, night. Bang, bang, bang. It's coming from outside, not the gun in the video. Present day, Mallory Marisol, 25, watches the video of herself on the computer screen we were just watching. She stares into her own eyes with the same piercing self-hatred. Neon fingernails chewed down to the quick, classic dyke nerd chic. Pause. She white knuckles the computer mouse the same way she gripped the gun in the video, when suddenly... They're coming for you. Terrified, Mallory deletes the last video. For good? She frantically tries to exit out, but ironically the key is broken. Title card. Escape. Interior, studio apartment, continuous. Wha-bam! The intruder slams the door open. Mallory's pupils constrict into pinpoints, not used to the natural daylight now illuminating the apartment. Mixture of geeky cyberpunk hoarder vibes. Reveal. Harper. Late 20s. The perfect girlfriend. Impenetrable, calm amidst the chaos. I know you're paranoid, but stop locking me out every time I check the mail for passports. I, I'm sorry. And stop apologizing unless you've done something wrong. Mallory furiously packs suitcases like her life depends on it. It makes you look guilty. No comment. Instead, Mallory chucks her computer into the IRL trash can. Deleted myself from the internet for good. Ready? Super uncomfortable beat. It's getting real hard to watch you punish yourself like this. Are, are you saying you can't do this anymore? Are you saying- Mal, hear me again. We wouldn't have to run away if you showed them that the Mallory I know isn't one of them. You can reach me by going to my company's website at feverdreamstudios.com or contacting me at katrina at feverdreamstudios.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Katrina Kudlik and reach out to me there as well. Hammond, written by Angel Dahoud. Like Bonnie Tyler once said, I need a hero. And Hammond is the one I conceived. Now, in my imaginary world, there are some forces that mimic the very worst of what goes on in our real world. We have a little bit of power to affect those changes in the real world, but ultimately not a lot. So that's where storytelling comes in for me. It's cathartic, writing Hammond, writing a character that I identify with that looks like me, isn't a clown, isn't an entertainer, but is a Controlled killer. That's the hero I wanted to see, that I have yet to see. Now I've got it. Exterior. Syria. Countryside. Day. Lush grass stretches to distant mountains. A house sits at the end of a dirt road off a small highway. Young brother and sister play with a scrappy dog nearby. In the distance on the highway, shitbox minivan. Radio. 30s, corn-fed civilian clothes, but military. Fiddles with the radio, which plays... Skinner, it always just makes the trip that much better. Driver, 30s, Asian-American, on sharp alert at the wheel. Tipping cows, babying up a cousin. Francesco Hammond, mid-30s, black, thick beard, slumps in back, vacantly stares out. A thrum, a grinding mash of unidentifiable sounds, plays for him constantly. 
I sense an attempt to insult, but the tunes are just... Hammond doesn't focus on the kids, but the thrum fades as soon as they come into view for him. Shit. A truck full of hooded ISIL fighters swoops past. Oh, shit. Driver's eyes shoot to the rear view, check in with Hammond, now focused on the kids, the thrum almost gone. The truck turns across the highway. Shit. And skids onto the dirt road. Shit. Hammond turns to finally see where the truck's headed. Stop the van. Sir, we have direct orders to- Hammond slams in a clip into a scoped assault rifle. Highway, van, Hammond steps out, moves into the field. Rito grabs his gun. Holy shit. A second truck loaded with ISIL fighters races by. Field. Hammond powers through the grass, but the field stretches as he moves. He runs faster. Highway. The second truck clatters onto the dirt road. The van dives into the field, cut towards Hammond. Second ISIL truck, same. The driver spots the van, cutting across the field, then breaks. Field. Hammond stops by a rock, lifts his gun. He doesn't have it. He searches. Boom. An RPG explodes near the van. Kakakak. Second truck fighters fire at Hammond. Hammond suddenly has his gun. He fires. Pop, pop, pop. Heads whip back. But the bodies don't fall. Hammond stares in disbelief. The fighters stand motionless, arms dangling. The first truck races toward the house. Hammond lines it up, but it disappears, thin air. Hammond blinks. It reappears. He aims. Boom. An RPG sends him flying. Hammond comes up manic, covered in dirt, lifts his gun. Watches in horror as his hand flies off instead of bullets. The hand tumbles into the grass and disappears. What the fuck? Second truck fighters rain hell on his position. He drops for cover. The van slides up. Radio and driver light up the second truck. Driver drops both RPG shooters as radio runs up. <laughs> Lost a hand! Well, I'd say let's get it, but it ain't safe. Let's run, sir! Radio drags Hammond back and tosses him in the minivan, where radio slides the door shut and jumps in front. The van then gets showered with gunfire. Bullets rip through driver and radio, both now dressed as ISIL fighters. Hammond looks out. The scrappy dog charges to meet the first truck then disappears. The kids scream. Hammond screams. Fade out. Doesn't excuse the behavior of individual officers. So yes, the mistrust from the community is... Interior, community center day. Captain Robert Wright, 50s, dedicated, addresses a crowd of angry community members. I'm working on new policies for CPD, but we're only half the equation. Community members have a responsibility as we well. We aren't regularly killing cops and walking away unpunished. There are no regular killings of civilians by my officers. Yo, it's Angel. You can reach me at angeldahoodcreative at gmail.com. That's my name spelled out A-N-G-E-L-D-A-A-H-O-U-D, creative, the word creative spelled out, at gmail.com. You can also catch me on Instagram at OneRacingTheSun, and those are all the words spelled out, O-N-E-R-A-C-I-N-G-T-H-E-S-U-N. That's One Racing the Sun. And that concludes our three pages for today and our pitches. Just to recap, that was Leah St. Marie with The Killing Floor. That was Mercedes Bryce Morgan and Katrina Kudlick with Escape, ESC. And that was Angel DeHood with Hammond. A special thank you to our actors, Nate Echo, Sean Owens, Diana Popic, Angel Murphy, and myself, Leah St. Marie. If you want to reach out to any of these lovely SAG actors, 
you can email us at doorswillopenpitch at gmail.com. If you're a writer and want to submit, please email us at doorswillopenpitch at gmail.com. And if you're looking to connect with one of the writers featured on this episode, go ahead and listen back to their contact information. Thanks for listening. Cheers from Hollywood. Cheers from Hollywood. Cheers from Hollywood.